morning, family. <clears throat> so how many words do we speak on an average day? Maybe you've looked into this. Um, so the average person, supposedly, people that do these kinds of studies, speak somewhere between 6,000 and 16,000 words a day. Okay, some of you might be more on the 6,000 side. Some of you may be more on the 16,000 side. Some of you may be below the scale. I don't know. Um, so if we don't count the first two years of life, even though there's some moms out there that are like, I think they say mom 6,000 times a day. Um, if we don't count the first two years of life, by the time you're 18, if you are in the 6,000, like low end, let's be conservative category, you've spoken over 35 million words. By the time you're 30, over 61 million words. By the time you're 50, over 105 million words. And for the talkative among us, if you're one of the, let's say, 15,000 word average people, those numbers jump to 87 million by the time you're 18, 153 million by the time you're 30, 262 million by the time you're 50, and we'll just stop at 50 for now. It's a lot of <laughs> I wasn't looking at you until you said something. Yeah, okay. So here's the question. This question kind of caught me off guard a little bit this week. What are words for? This is kind of like obvious question. What we should probably ask that question, speaking this many words. I mean, I guess we could say they're a gift from God, right? We're made in his image. He's a communicating, speaking God. You know, we could tease that out a little bit. But what are they for? God gave them to us. How should we use this gift? What should we use them for? What are they for? So communication, yes. But more than that, What are we supposed to use our words for? What are they supposed to do? How about, how about for God? Well, for God, he wants to disclose himself to us, so he speaks. And it would be for his glory and for our good, our joy, and for love, to have a relationship, that communication is necessary to a loving relationship. So those are some of the reasons why he speaks in words. This is why he's given us words for relationship and community, to express love, to build trust, and that we may know and be known like vertically and horizontally. Ray Orlin in his Proverbs commentary says this, true words make love and trust and intimacy possible. But false words conceal us from one another, even as we might go on faking community, role-playing community outwardly while something else is really going on in our hearts. And who wants that hypocrisy? 
So God gave us words for a reason, for many reasons, and there is tremendous consequence to our words. Let me just, before we dive into Proverbs, we're getting there, um, but before we do, I think Jesus needs to get our attention. I think this would be helpful to just hear some very sobering words from the Lord Jesus in Matthew 12. In verses 33 to 37, he says this, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. He's speaking to the religious leaders at the time, and he says, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And then he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Talk about the tremendous consequence of our words. The power of the tongue, the weightiness of our words. So we're going through a series through the book of Proverbs. We went kind of section by section in chapters 1 to 9, which is an introduction to the book. And then the book of Proverbs has lots of individual and small groupings of wise sayings from chapters 10 through 31. So it's harder to kind of go through it in the same way. So what we're doing is we're looking thematically through the rest of the book of Proverbs for several weeks so last week, um, oh, this is embarrassing. What did we talk about last week? <laughs> um, oh, needs, meet needs, okay. We need wisdom to meet need, okay. And this morning, it's words, okay? Obviously, we're gonna look at work next week. We're gonna look at the home. We're gonna look at friendship and some other things in weeks to come, okay? So what we could do is put two primary proverbs over this whole message, this whole study, and then we're going to see a number of different individual texts in Proverbs throughout um, this morning, all right? So two major ones, two kind of, I guess, umbrella texts, you could say. The first one is Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. And then Proverbs 12, 18, kind of easy to remember, 18, 12, and 12, 18. Um, but there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So death and life is in the power of the tongue, are in the power of the tongue, and the tongue can be like a sword cutting and wounding, but the tongue can also of the wise can bring healing, all right? So words can have incredible power. They have incredible weight. They can do great damage. They can do great good. Talk is not cheap. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. False. So let's look at first, death is in the power of the tongue, and then we're going to look at life is in the power of the tongue, 
and then two more points after that. The final word, and then the ones after that, all right? So point number one, death is in the power of the tongue. So in each of these first two points, we're going to see the principle, then we're going to see some specific examples, and then we're going to consider the source and the speaker, which will make sense when we get there, all right? So death is in the power of the tongue, first the principle. What is the death that is in the power of the tongue? What are we talking about? Well, the tongue holds power to do damage to other image bearers. We can wound and hurt and tear down and do damage to other people by our words. Words can sink down in to the core of a person and do real damage. Again, Proverbs 12, 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Probably most of us in this room have been on the receiving end of some of those rash words and some of those sword thrusts. We know what that feels like to have that kind of damage inflicted. And also, probably most of us have been on the giving end as well. Derek Kidner writes this, the feelings or morale may be lacerated by a cruel or clumsy thrust like the piercings of a sword and a wounded spirit who can bear. Because again, the spirit can be wounded and it can be wounded by words. Some of you may still have words in your head that regularly are on repeat that your parents said to you hurtful words decades ago and they follow you like a dark shadow. They dog you, dog at your heels, plague you. They rear, your ugly, rear their ugly head every time that you, you fail or make a mistake. So there is death in the power of the tongue. It can do real damage because it can penetrate to the core of who we are and wound us. Also, words can spread like wildfire and do damage, okay? James, you know, the tongue is like a fire. It can spread like wildfire, strife and discord. Look at Proverbs 16, 27. A worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisper, a gossip, separates close friends. So he speaks and things happen. Damage is done. And again, Al read it from James 3. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. So words can be used as weapons. I don't think I need to convince any of you of that. We can club people, can beat people, abuse people with our words. So specific examples. Remember, principle, specific examples, and then um, source and speaker. So gossip, slander, rumors. They can both penetrate and hurt. They can spread and do damage, right? Destructive criticism. 
good place for constructive criticism, but destructive criticism, where you just tear somebody down to their face, or some other way, biting sarcasm. I mean, maybe we could make a place for playful sarcasm, but be careful. Biting, biting sarcasm is sometimes kind of like a passive-aggressive way to attack. Belittling and dismissing other people with our words. Manipulation. That can happen in kind of an active form of bullying, threats. Those are tools of manipulation, but also flattery is a tool of manipulation. It's a little nicer, but it's still using niceness in its own selfish interests. And it's hypocritical, too, because it's not sincere. You could define flattery as excessive and insincere praise given especially to further one's own interests. So actually, we don't have time to explore this, but this is worth pondering. Words have incredible weight, and they can be incredibly weightless. (laughs) Really powerful and really powerless. Isn't that ironic? That they can be so powerful and yet also so weak. Empty, kind of weightless, worthless, right? But also heavy, weighty, consequential. Anyway, back to the point. Our speech can be dangerous and deadly. Think of the damage. And again, I don't think we have to think too hard. It's probably happened to you or you've seen it happen. It can destroy churches. It can destroy families. What damage gossip and slander can do. What destructive criticism can do. What rumors can do. What manipulation and lies and deceit and put downs and verbal abuse can do. Death is in the power of the tongue. 1812. In 1218, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrust. So the principle is clear. The examples, we could multiply examples, but we also need to consider the source, okay? How many of you have a Bluetooth speaker in your house? Or, you know, you tie in to your car stereo when you get in the car. Maybe it does it automatically, and when pairing is successful, you might hear, Device connected, you know, whoever said that, I don't know. But anyway, um, am I the only one that has that weird voice on some of the devices? Okay, thank you, I've seen a few. Um, So when we use words in these destructive ways, whose voice are we channeling, becoming a speaker for? We are amplifying and echoing the evil one. The source of deadly words is found in the garden. Satan's deadly words led to death. He came with lies and deceit because murder was on his mind, because he knew that in the day that they ate of the forbidden fruit, they would surely die. And he's a murderer from the beginning. So Satan didn't threaten Adam and Eve with a sword. If you don't eat this thing, I'm going to cut your head off. Like, no. He sowed death with deadly words, lies, deceit. He sowed doubt in the goodness of God. He sought to make the weighty words of God seem light and insubstantial, inconsequential. And there's nothing new under the sun. He's still doing it today. 
So death is in the power of the tongue, Satan's lies and deceit. So death, device connected, and Adam and Eve start to speak words of spin and deceit and blame shifting and the fire spread. Listen, we all live by words. Even if you're a visual learner, we all live by words. We're either going to be a speaker system for the Spirit or for Satan. What did Satan's words do? What did he say? Again, he's sowing doubt in the goodness of God. He's a liar and a deceiver and a murderer. And, And listen, gossip and slander, what are they? Verbal character assassination. God speaks, Satan speaks, Satan brought death by his words, Satan cursed, Satan deceives and he lies, so all this death and destruction, that's not what words are for. God's the inventor of words. He gave that gift to us. Satan perverts it and hijacks it. Hijacks this good gift of God for evil purposes, like hijacking an airplane to use as a weapon of mass destruction on 9-11. That's not what an airplane is for. They're supposed to take you to visit your loved ones or enable you to do good work or provide good services or take a vacation or whatever, not to be used to blow up buildings and kill thousands of people. And words are intended to be used as God uses them. God is truth, and he speaks truth. He blesses by his words. And he gives life by his words. So the second point, life is in the power of the tongue. Again, principle, some examples, and then source and speaker. So what is this life that's in the power of the tongue? The tongue holds power to be life-giving to other image bearers. We can heal and build up and bless And words, wonderfully, thankfully, can sink into the core of a person and do real, lasting good. Proverbs 12, 18. The tongue of the wise brings healing. So yes, words can spread destructively like wildfire, but the positive impact can spread as well. It's a fountain of life. Look at Proverbs 10, 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life that overflows and waters and slakes thirst. So like, what a word picture. Don't you want to be a fountain of life to other people? Do you want that to be true of you? Like, make me wise. Make us wise, Lord. Do you know anybody that that describes? Who comes to mind when that proverb is Red. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. You've probably drunk deeply at the feet of that person in the past, and it's been so refreshing and helpful and encouraging. You've experienced it. You come away refreshed from conversation with this person. That's what God intends to do. That's what He wants to do with each of us. So, the principle. The tongue is and is intended to be life-giving. 
specific examples. I'll just mention a few. This is certainly not exhaustive, but speaking the words of the gospel is the ultimate life-giving power, right? It's the seed of the word, this imperishable seed, and you share the gospel, and some people, it's going to sink down into the core of who they are, and they're going to become a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, and their life is changed forever, literally. So we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It is the word of life. In addition, whenever we speak the truth, whenever we are honest and lies and deceit, we reject. They do damage. When we are honest and truthful, we become trustworthy people that make the world a safer place. You can make your little part of the world that God has intended to place you in a safer place because people can actually trust what you're going to say, and that reflects the character of God. And this is not to say that we don't sometimes hurt people with the truth, Okay, But it's never hurt as an end in itself. It's hurt that's aimed at healing or a hurt that's aimed at helping. Like if we have to speak the truth, we do it in love and it's not aimed to gain moral high ground or whatever else. No, it's aimed to help someone. And we are certainly going to need to be challenged or rebuked or confronted at times and we're going to need to swallow our pride and receive that loving help from a brother or sister. So speaking the truth and speaking honestly also is another example. And, and I should say this, I've kind of alluded to it, but speaking this truth in love, like manner matters. When it comes to our speech, for it to be life-giving, manner matters. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath. It doesn't just say an answer turns away wrath. A certain kind of answer turns away wrath. Wrath. A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word, again, manner matters, stirs up anger. So, yes, our words matter. What we say matters. But also how we say them matters. Manner is a reflection of, it's an overflow of the heart. Words are always more than just words. What you say springs forth from who you are. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, which is... One of the reasons why Proverbs 4.23 is so important. Above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows everything else. So we speak the gospel, we speak the truth, we do it in love. Life is also in the tongue when words are weighed and chosen wisely. Okay, there's a proverb in 10.19. It says, an abundance of words, sin is not lacking. Like, if we are careless, just loose cannon, sin's going to get multiplied. So we need wisdom to weigh and choose our words. Three verses, just one after the other. Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. No filter. So look at that. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. It is right. It is righteous to think before you speak. Proverbs 15.23, to make an apt answer, an appropriate, fitting answer, is a joy to a man. And a word in season, oh, how good it is. 
similar verse, Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. You can't eat, I don't know, for some reason that's attractive, okay? It's a positive thing even though I think I would either rather have a gold bar or maybe apples to eat, but anyway, apples of gold, whatever that means. Okay, it's positive. So, Lord, again, make us wise. Like the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Life is in the power of the tongue. The tongue of the wise brings healing. And so the next point flows right out of that, even though the, the next example flows right out of it, even though it might not be the first thing we think of. Another specific example of how our words can bring healing. Ready? Apology. Francis Schaeffer wrote this in The Mark of a Christian. I remember reading this in my freshman year of college. It's a little tiny book. Mark of a Christian is love, okay? What does this love mean? How can it be made visible? First, it means a very simple thing. It means that when I have failed to love my Christian brother or sister, I go to him and say, I'm sorry. It may sound simplistic to start with saying we are sorry and asking forgiveness, but it is not. This is the way of renewed fellowship. And whether it is between a husband and wife, a parent and child within a Christian community, or between groups, when we have shown a lack of love toward the other, we are called by God to go and say, I'm sorry. I really am sorry. If I am not willing to say I'm sorry when I have wronged somebody else, especially when I have not loved him or her, I have not even started to think about the meaning of Christian love and unity. Listen, time does not heal all wounds. When you sin against another and then just avoid dealing with it, you just move on, it doesn't make the wounds go away. So one of the ways we can be life-giving with our speech is to say, I'm sorry. Another way, on the other hand, is I forgive you. Proverbs 17, 9 says, whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Whoever covers an offense, that is a choice to forgive, seeks love. That is a life-giving use of your tongue, of your words. Another one, encouragement. Encouragement is not flattery. It is pointing out, it is drawing attention to the grace of God in the life of someone else. So where do you see evidence of the grace of God? Say so. With your kids, with any brother or sister you see in whom the grace of God is evident, with those in your community group, with those you're serving in some ministry. Listen, Christian encouragement is pointing out evidences of God's grace in that person's life. So what's, the, what's going on here? God gets the glory, they get the encouragement. Like, how appropriate is that? You're not puffing their head up, you're not flattering them. You're saying, I'm so encouraged, brother. Like, when you were doing thus and such, or when you spoke to so-and-so, or when you did this, or when you do... God's grace is so evident in your life and I just give thanks whenever I think of you in this regard. That's not glorifying the person. It's glorifying the God who put the grace on that person to enable them to live that way, speak that way, serve that way. And they are encouraged. 
Listen to Acts 11.23. Barnabas, you know his name was Joseph, right? And he was nicknamed Barnabas. Barnabas, son of encouragement, because he was an encourager. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord and with devoted hearts because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He saw the grace of God and he's like, hey, you guys need to see what's happening here and I want to encourage you so that you, you know, recognize and can give thanks to what God is doing here. God's at work here. You should be encouraged. Paul does this over and over again in his letters. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of what God is doing in you and through you. He even was able to say encouraging things to the Corinthians, as much of a mess as that church was. Read chapter 1. I, thank my, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, and on and on. So encouragement is life-giving. Pointing out the evidence of the grace of God in someone's life is life-giving. God gets the glory. They get the encouragement. Lastly, exhortation. And I'm under, again, the whole, like, we're listing off specific examples of how the tongue can be life-giving. Exhortation, okay? It's all over the place in the Proverbs. Here are just two places as examples. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer. He'll hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Exhortation is life-giving. And then the other verse, Proverbs 15, 31, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof. Life-giving reproof. So to exhort someone, even to reprove someone, is life-giving. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. So the word of God, listen, it is a double-edged sword, right? It penetrates to the depth of who we are, division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. But when it cuts, it does so to cut away deadness and cancer and show us what's really down there so that, you know, debreeding that wound, we can be healed and we can be strengthened by that work. So bottom line, the lips of the righteous feed many. Proverbs 10.21. Bottom line, Proverbs 16.24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Anybody ever sucked on a honeycomb? Like, that's awesome. If you like honey. Um, anybody? Uh, come on. Give me a hand. Like, anybody with me here? All right. Um, Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. It's life-giving. So the principle is clear. The examples are many, and we've only considered a few, and briefly at that. But let's also consider the source. Okay, remember the Bluetooth speaker, device connected. When we use words in these life-giving ways, whose voice are we channeling? The source of all life-giving words is found in Genesis 1 and 2. God spoke and life sprang forth. Like everything was because of his words. Let there be and there was. He came with truth and goodness because abundant life and shalom was on his mind. That was his purpose for speaking and creating. And even where he warned, 
in the day you eat of it. Like, uh, I'm giving you one prohibition, and the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. It's because he didn't want him to die. God blessed with his words. God's words give life. It's not just in Genesis 1 and 2, Matthew 4, 4, quoting Deuteronomy 8, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, because God's word gives us life, it sustains our life. Or Psalm 1, God's word is powerful, it's generative, it gives life. The man who meditates, who delights in the law of the Lord, meditates on it day and night, it's like a tree, like a fruitful tree. The word of God is life-giving. It's generative. Life is in the power of the tongue. God's grace and wisdom make us speakers connected to him as our source. We can speak words of truth and life and healing. This is what our words are for. Like, oh, Lord, help us remember what our words are for when we wake up every morning. And even our repentance and our apologies and our words that extend forgiveness and our encouragements and exhortations, they flow from their source in divine grace and they water many lives. They can bring healing to many. So, okay, that's points one and two. Now, if we're honest, we probably live way more under point number one than we do under point number two. And back to those sobering words of Jesus at the beginning. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. Like we're gonna give an account for every careless word. By our words, we'll be condemned. What do we do about this? There's nothing we can do about this. There's nothing we can do about this. Like, if we have to stand on our own merits, I mean, God could just hit play on the tape recorder. He wouldn't have to say anything. On the day of judgment, we'd all be condemned. But this word in Matthew 12, 37 is not all God has said to us through Christ. Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And we have a good word to make us glad. The final word. Point number three. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. The final word. The ultimate self-revelation of God. God in the flesh, the Word made flesh. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Down to verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has explained Him, made Him known to us. So again, let me quote Ray Ortland here. He writes this, On the cross, Jesus loved us so much that his sacrifice deleted the damning record before God of every foolish word you and I have ever spoken. He took the divine condemnation for our lies, insults, gossip, put-downs, bragging, false promises, and griping, as well as our guilty silence when we should have spoken up. 
He took it all onto himself and hit the delete button. Hallelujah. That's not in there, but that's... Look at him on the cross, dying for what you and I have said and left unsaid. So we've spoken, with our millions of words, we've spoken more sinful, deadly words than we care to admit. Probably that we've, we've forgotten more than we remember. And we deserve to be condemned for them. God's heard every one of them. Nothing in all creation is hidden from his eyes and from his ears. But he spoke a better word, a final word, sending his son, the word made flesh, to live the life that we've all failed to live and die the death that our spiritual speech, among other things, our sinful speech, deserves. We've had good news preached to us that our sins can be forgiven, that it is finished. How about that word that was spoken? And all of our condemnation-worthy words have been paid for, past, present, and future. God has spoken a better, more powerful word than any of your wicked words. And now, because of Jesus' death in our place, we can cry out, God, have mercy on me, the sinner, and know that we will go home justified. Jesus, save me. We can say those words and know that they will be answered. Forgive me. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And not only are all of our condemnation-worthy words atoned for, covered, paid for, but God himself speaks a better word over our lives. Listen to this. If you are in Christ, you know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, You were in Adam, you know, as a speaker for Satan. Now you are in Christ. This is what justification means. You remember when Jesus was baptized, what the Father said? This is my beloved Son. In him I am well pleased. If you are in Christ, when you are justified, that's the word that's spoken over your life. This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved daughter. In you, I am what? You're accepted. You are absolutely accepted. You're in Christ. You're as accepted as my son. You're accepted in the beloved, like it says in Ephesians. That is the weightiest word that can free you from all the fears and anxieties and insecurities that bubble up and spill out in all kinds of ugly speech. And that's not the only word that God speaks over his beloved children. We also wait for, and I love that we sang it as well, Lord, haste the day when faith becomes sight. We wait and live for the day when we will hear infinitely weighty words that go along with glorification. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We live between those two words. And there is power in those two words. Living between justification and glorification. No matter what you've heard or haven't heard from other human beings, you may have been railed on, beaten down, slandered, gossiped about, backstabbed, ignored, criticized, cut down, marginalized. If you've never heard I love you, 
from someone you should have heard it from. If you've never heard you matter, I thank God for you. If you've never heard I'm glad you're here, if you are in Christ, you live between these two infinitely weighty words. This is my beloved son or daughter. In you I am well pleased. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And someday by God's grace, his faithfulness, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Here's the question, brothers and sisters. How weighty did those infinitely weighty words feel on a daily basis? If they feel really light and wispy and weak, it's going to be hard to be a speaker for God. And Satan wants the words of God to feel worthless and weightless and weak. Somebody tries to encourage you? Yeah, but careful. If nothing else, I think this should lead us to pray, oh God, would you please cause the wonderful weight of your gracious gospel words and your glorious promises to carry all the weight with me and with my brothers and sisters that they are intended to carry. When God's words are weighty to us, our words will start to get weighty with wisdom and grace. God spoke his final word in through Christ and his word enables our words after that. Last point. The ones after that. Who can tame the tongue? We can't. But Jesus can by his blood-bought grace and by his spirit. When we are aware of, aware of, we need to remember, remind ourselves, rehearse the gospel to ourselves. When we remember and are aware of how God has dealt with us in Christ, not as our sinful speech deserves, how he's been merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. His grace has enabled us then. It enables us to channel his grace and truth and love to others, device connected, so that we can, Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up. What are words for? They're good for building up. As fits the occasion, it takes wisdom to know the right word at the right time, when to keep your mouth shut, when to bite your tongue, <laughs> when to speak, and what to speak, that it may give grace to those who hear. What are words for? Give grace to those who hear. Oh, how God has used his words to give us grace. And now we, by his grace, can channel his grace to others. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. The lips of the righteous feed many. God intends for us to speak his words and his grace and his truth into others' lives to help it sink down in. And the more that we stock up on his words and his grace, the more God's words and his wisdom sink in and have the weight in our lives that they should have, the more it wells up and waters others. The more we sow the gospel word in our souls, the more generously, wisely, we will sow it into the hearts of others and feed many. 
So let's pray, and if the men who are going to be serving communion could come forward, we'll participate in the table together. Oh God, would you please let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts by your blood-bought grace, won by the word made flesh, full of grace and truth. May our words and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.